Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is episode number 330 of this podcast. We cover all kinds of San Diego local news updates. And thanks for joining us here on the live stream. Boy, we got a lot going on for you today. We're going to talk about San Diego being the most expensive city to live in in the United States, which is an interesting report that came out. We're going to talk a little bit about a proposed sales tax hike in the city of San Diego. Um, and some interesting um, comments, because we're at the 20-year anniversary of the Cedar Fire. Remember that one in 2003 that you know blew apart Poway and, and uh, Scripps Ranch and many other parts of our county? Well, there's been some interesting regulations that came out of that in our that affect our housing market. I want to talk briefly about that. There's a there's a plan in place. These people they want to get basically kick out San Diego Gas and Electric, replace that with a um, essentially a government run utility. We're going to break down that story. Um, there's some uh, new updates on our Poway Lifetime Fitness controversy. That's this new fitness center they're putting in the farm in Poway. I want to break some of that down. Um, and, you know, some discussion about Poway being a city in the country and even a podcaster in the news here in San Diego, not me, but a different podcaster who was fired from her job for having anti-Trump comments in her podcast. What do you think of that? So we got all this in store for you, plus our San Diego community forum. That's our plan today on the John Riley Project. Welcome and thanks for joining us. You know, we like to talk about San Diego news headlines, kind of get into the nitty gritty of some of our local news stories. But we welcome you in this live stream. If you are participating, if you're viewing, you can get involved. You know, just type your comment or question in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube and we'll get you involved in this podcast. So how you doing, everybody? Everyone having a good day? It's hump day. Uh, getting near Halloween you know, it's interesting to talk briefly about the Cedar Fire. You know, this is that time of the year when those Santa Ana winds start blowing. So right now, you know, knock on wood, I think we're doing okay. Uh, but let's uh, let's jump into our first story and let's talk a little bit about San Diego being the most expensive city to live in in the United States. And this. For some people, this isn't news at all, right? I mean, everyone knows it's really expensive to live in America's finest city. And this is a news story from CBS 8, from, you know, one of our local television news uh, stations. And this report was published by the U.S. News and World Report. You know, those guys are the ones that always stack rank all the universities. And according to this study, and they, they looked at median gross rent, they looked at annual housing costs in the city and other fees associated with home ownership. Um, they looked at inflation rate, cost of gas, cost of a lot of other you know items, you know, utility rates, et cetera. And they concluded that San Diego was the most expensive city to live in, in in America. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, here's the top 10 list, and I'll go from number 10 up to number one. I'll go in that order. So number 10 was Vallejo and Fairfield, California. That surprised me. I mean, that's kind of, you know, halfway between San Francisco and Sacramento, but I remember driving through that area a ton as a kid, and obviously there's a lot of housing expansion there. It's all part of, you know, being, you know, part of Northern California and, and you know, loosely connected with Silicon Valley. Number nine on the list was San Juan, Puerto Rico. This surprised me because I know there's a lot of Americans that are moving to Puerto Rico because there's some 
Well, first of all, let me reel that one back. Puerto Ricans are Americans. Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States of America. But there are people that live in the 50 states that are moving to Puerto Rico because there's a lot of tremendous tax advantages. So this surprised me it was on the list. Number eight is Santa Rosa, California. Um, Number seven, Salinas, California. Now, granted, this is probably the metropolitan area. Salinas itself is a farming community, but I think I'm sure this involves Monterey and and Carmel-by-the-Sea and a lot of the other coastal areas there um, in central California. Number six is San Francisco. Number five, Santa Barbara, California. God, this is almost all California. Number four is Miami, Florida. Number three, Honolulu. Number two, Los Angeles. And number one, San Diego, the most expensive city to live in in America. Now, I remember seeing a report about this like around 30 years ago. And and back then, San Diego was one of the most expensive places to live. Even back then, the median home price was probably only 200000 you know, only 200000 What is it now? It's close to a million dollars. But when they look, when you looked at um, median home price and you looked at median household income, that it was the most difficult market to buy a house, especially for first-time homebuyers, was in San Diego. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's always going to be demand to live in America's finest city. I mean, people are they pay more to live here because the weather is great. The you know the standard of living is generally pretty good compared to a lot of other alternatives in America. Um, but you know, it gets more and more expensive because a lot of our local officials implement policies that make it more expensive to live in San Diego. And we're going to talk about some of that. So, you know, demand is high. That's going to increase uh, prices and make it expensive. But limiting supply has a negative effect. Limiting supply of housing makes housing more expensive. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go through the podcast. So what do you think? Um, Let's move on. And I want to kind of, if we're talking about the cost of living in San Diego, check this out. The city of San Diego is considering a sales tax hike. Now, this this is interesting. Now, um, they're talking about raising our sales tax by a half of a percent or maybe a full percent. And you might be thinking, ah, you know, that's just a couple of pennies on the dollar. No, no big deal. But, you know, this whole thing just starts adding up. And, you know, we already pay really high income tax in the state of California. In fact, I think it's the highest income tax of any state in the nation. We uh, pay really high gasoline taxes. I think that's also the highest in America. Um, Our corporate tax rates, our capital uh, capital gains tax rates are some of the tops in America. Our property tax in California, while the percentage may not be that high, the check we write to the county assessor is extraordinarily high because our home values are high. And, you know, people are struggling. we got a homelessness crisis. We have a housing crisis. People living in their cars. And now they're considering increasing sales taxes, which, by the way, you know, impact the poor probably more than anybody. But sure enough, they are. Now, the San Diego County Taxpayers Association, which, by the way, don't be fooled by that name. The San Diego Taxpayers Association is mostly a 
business-oriented Chamber of Commerce-like organization that enjoys the benefits of the higher taxes, you know, that that will uh, enable construction firms to participate in development of a lot of things around San Diego. The They're not like a tax-fighting organization like the Richard Ryder Group, but they said, the San Diego Taxpayers Association said that it would generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. But according to San Diego resident Jonah Amuda, he said, we're barely getting by. And the only good luck we've gotten is gas is going down a bit, but every cent counts nowadays. And he's right. It's expensive to live here and it should be expensive to live in San Diego because it's a desirable place to be. But it just seems that our local officials keep making it even more expensive. Um, And here they want to generate more tax dollars. They say, you know, this is going to fund roads. This is going to fund a lot of different things here. Right? There was even a quote. Um, and where did I see that? It was. Uh, yeah, th- this was from Alan Jin, who is a well-known economist from the University of San Diego. He speaks on a lot of these co- topics all the time. And he said that anything that is subject to a sales tax would then be a little more expensive. The city says it needs that revenue to um, uh, to engage in stuff like street repairs and other things in terms of improving the quality of life for the local community. It sounds pretty vague, doesn't it? Now, I don't care what the sales tax rate is, it seems like San Diego roads are always a disaster. I mean, still to this day, I mean, I complain all the time about Carmel Mountain Road, about Ted Williams Parkway, and a lot of other places here in the neck of the woods where I live. I live in Poway, but I'm in Rancho Bernardo, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Saber Springs quite a bit. You know, those are all our next door neighbors. Um, the roads continue to be a mess, you know, and, and you wonder about you know, police protection and how good it is and really where are those resources being directed? Sometimes you just kind of wonder about some of the priorities they have with spending, but they're always going back to the well to get more money. And, and you know, unions are behind this, especially government employee unions, because they're the ones, you know, that are enjoying the benefit of the higher sales tax because the majority of the money goes to pay for employees, Government-paid employees. Now, the current ta- sales tax rate in San Diego is seven and three quarters percent. Now, it's, this is worth breaking down because you know, the sales tax that we pay has three layer layers to it. There's the state layer, which I believe is six percent, which I also believe is the highest of any state in the nation in California. But then you add the county layer, which is seven, which is an additional one and three quarters percent which gets the sales tax to seven and three quarters, which many communities in San Diego pay. But in some cities, they've added a third layer to increase it even more. Because, for example, in Oceanside, El Cajon and Vista, the rate is 8.25%. And there are many cities in the state of California that it's over 10% sales tax. So, you know, they can keep adding layers to this. Now, um, Oh, oh, yeah. Chula Vista, National City, Del Mar, Imperial Beach. The rate there is eight and three quarters, 8.75. Now, Escondido considered a sales tax increase. It's been shot down twice by voters. Now, San Diego coming to the well. What do you think of this? Now, sales tax obviously impacts many of the things we buy. It doesn't impact food or medicine, but it impacts the price we pay for clothing, for 
gasoline, because, you know, gasoline has a gas tax, but you're also paying the sales tax on gasoline and just a lot of other things in our in our in our market. You know, when we're buying takeout food, um, if we're going to a restaurant, sales tax is added to that. Um, you know, it, it makes a significant difference when you add it all up. And particularly for people that are that are, you know, maybe have less disposable income, this is going to hit them the hardest. What do you think of this? Does San Diego need an increase in the sales tax? Well, I'm definitely a big no on that. But right now, they're just trying to get organized. They're trying to see if they can get this on the ballot in November of 2024. So we'll see what kind of progress they make on that. Okay. um, Before we kind of get into the rest of the agenda here, we're going to talk about um, the Cedar Fire. It's a 20-year anniversary of the Cedar Fire that blew through San Diego. with some amazing memories and the impact that that's had on our housing community. I want to talk about that. Got some interesting Poway News updates and a podcaster just got in trouble for anti-Trump comments. I want to talk about that as well. But before we do, hey, if you've got questions or comments about this podcast, if you'd like to join our mailing list, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. And there you'll learn all about the podcast. All of our back episodes are there, social media connections. I've got a you know a modest blog there. I haven't written an article in a while. I should do that. Um, and then if you want to get connected on social media, like I said, you want to join the mailing list, you can do that there. So just go to johnreillyproject.com to get more information about what we're doing with this podcast. Because, you know, johnreillyproject.com is more than just this podcast. Um, it also involves a e-commerce sites that I have and, and also another podcast that I do, our all sports podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Okay, um, let's go down the list here. And I want to talk a bit about the San Diego building regulations. This is a um, a comment that I noticed in the in the, one of the articles was talking about how the Cedar Fire impacted our housing prices um, and and our housing regulations. And it just got me thinking, first of all, about the Cedar Fire. I mean, do you do you remember the Cedar Fire? I mean, that was an incredible event. I'll just share some of my own stories. Um, in 2003, we were living way in the back southeast corner of Poway, right off a of garden road. And the fire ripped through that area, that, that cedar fire. In fact, the house that was directly across the street from us burnt down. There were four homes in our immediate neighborhood that were burnt down. And I think as many as like 15 or 20 in our extended neighborhood. Um, you know, kind of in the, in the greater Garden Road community. Um, it was a tragic event. Um, and the crazy part of it was, is that I wasn't here. Um, I was out of town. I was out of town for my, get this, my 25-year reunion of my eighth grade class. <laughs> and that was put on by some of my, um, my, my former, you know, uh, colleagues, my former uh, classmates um, and had organized that. So I was up in the Bay Area. My wife was down here in Poway. Our children at the time were ages three and five when that happened. And she was here by herself with the two young kids. My parents were available. They helped her out. But we thought for sure that our house was going to be torched. We thought it was a, it was doomed. And, you know, when my wife left our, our home, our, we lived in the old Sycamore Creek community of Poway, which is surrounded by canyons. 
when she left, the fire was coming down the canyon on both sides. And um, yeah, we were certain that the whole community was going to be torched. Well, it turned out that, you know, they, they brought in those airplanes with that orange fire retardant and they dropped it along the slope. In fact, they dropped it, a lot of it on our backyard fence and many other backyard fences in our community. And that ultimately saved our house, which is just amazing. Um, but I was, I was in the Bay Area and I was, our, our reunion was like on that Saturday night. And so I was planning on flying back Sunday. But I couldn't fly back because there was so much smoke in the area that we couldn't, you know, the airport was closed down in San Diego. So I was able to rent a car and I drove back. And then when I drove back, I, I didn't get back to Poway until, you know, early evening. And just driving through some of the neighborhoods, it was like, a, you know, like a Terminator movie or something. It was all these houses that were burnt out. You saw embers that were still glowing on some of the the um, concrete platforms of, you know, the foundations of some of these houses. Um, I remember I did a photo essay um, or just around, you know, on our, on our property and a little bit beyond our property where it was like a moonscape. The, all of the brush was burnt to a crisp and the ground was literally blackened. Um, it was like a moon landing. It looked so outrageously unusual. Um, but Amazingly, our house survived. And I know there's a lot of people whose home didn't survive. The, the, the biggest people or the, the biggest amount of damage that occurred was for our next door neighbors in Scripps Ranch. And I think they lost a lot more homes. So, you know, there's been a lot in the news about the Cedar Fire. But I think it's interesting to comment here briefly that since the Cedar Fire occurred, they implemented a lot of new housing regulations, which has had an impact on the current housing crisis that we have now. And I think it's just interesting to talk about this because we're always commenting about housing. So this article in the Union Tribune said that the 2003 Blazes lesson accelerated a shift towards urban infill development and away from building in fire-prone backcountry areas. So yeah, so you know, you know normally when they're building new housing development, they go out to the fringe of the suburbs right where the suburbs become rural, and then they'll build a 200, 300 home community in different little areas of the county. But as they do that, they're encroaching more on open space, encroaching more into the backcountry. And a lot of people are saying, hey, man, you're just inviting more potential for damage when the fires inevitably come ripping back through this area. And that's why there's been so much focus on doing what's called infill development. And if you live here in Poway, there's a ton of infill development that's going on. Infill development meaning, you know, where there's open space, open lots that are inside certain cities, you know, kind of an island of emptiness in many of our communities. And we're seeing that um, with the development on Poway Road. We're seeing that with the development in Rancho Bernardo, in Rancho Penasquitos, with the farm in Poway. Tremendous development. All of it infill. Because it's, it's within the urban or suburban areas of our community. And so that's where a lot of the development has been occurring. Now, according to um, this article, they said that because of the 2003 Cedar Fire, there were um, dramatic new regulations that have arguably limited 
the growth of our county. Um, for example, now brand new homes require fire resistant roofs, fire resistant windows and vents on new construction to limit and to limit where housing can be built and to require well-planned evacuation routes. County and city of San Diego leaders have gone beyond those rules to adopt even more aggressive local regulations, giving our region a reputation for the state's second strictest wildfire regulations behind only the Bay Area. But these local officials have stopped short and they say, we're only applying this to brand new homes. We're not applying it to people that have existing homes, requiring people to renovate or make changes because that could cost existing homeowners $40,000 to bring their house up to code to be on par with a lot of the other houses, especially for the new development. Um, I see Ed Franklin on the live stream. Nice to see you, Ed. I'll be opening up the San Diego Community Forum at the conclusion of all of our San Diego County headlines, where we'll be getting a lot more people involved, including our social media commenters. But Ed Franklin, good to see you on the live stream. So what do you think of this? Now, it's interesting, first of all, that that there is now plans, you know, since, you know, 20 years ago, since the Cedar Fire, to do more infill development. And I kind of get it, you know, I mean, there's, if you're an environmentalist and you don't want housing development out into the back country, out into these open spaces, you might say, okay, yeah, fine, build infill. And normally, Many progressives are supportive of that, if they're, especially if they're environmentalists, especially if they generally are more supportive of a urban kind of a city living where there's going to be apartments. And there are certain people on the left of the political spectrum that are supportive of that. But what's interesting here is that in my hometown of Poway, a lot of leftists, as well as people on the right, as well as people that are moderates or even independent, There's just tremendous objection to infill development, you know, because we're building all these. Well, I say we there there are developers in our hometown of Poway that are building single family homes, that are building apartment buildings, that are building townhouses in infill areas, townhouses that are two stories, apartment buildings that are four stories tall. And people are freaking out. You know, it's kind of like the NIMBYs, not in my backyard. They want that development to be occurring not here. You know, get it out there somewhere. We don't want it near us. So it's like it makes you wonder about, you know, how, you know, really what are people's motivations here when they're really trying to block housing? You know, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, we'll block housing, you know, because we're environmental and we don't want the housing going out in, in, onto the fringes of our community. But then when they actually say, okay, then we're just going to build in the infill, then they get upset too. There's no satisfying a lot of the anti-housing people. Um, Now, wildfires had previously been considered a problem restricted to the region's backcountry. So the fire served as a wake-up call to residents and officials when it spread from East County into Scripps Ranch which lost 312 homes. Tierra Santa lost 12 homes in 2023. I don't know how many were lost in Poway. It wasn't 312 like Scripps Ranch, but I'll I'll bet it was like at least 40, you know, maybe 50 homes were lost in Poway, something like that. Um, And according to this, other projects proposed in unincorporated areas of county uh, from Otay Mesa to the outskirts of Santee and Escondido have been halted abandoned in the face of opposition 
or significantly scale back, right? Because, you know, the environmentalists are saying, don't build out there. You're just going to invite more wildfire, you know, more wildfire damage. Even the Sierra Club is behind a lot of this. And the Sierra Club touts that they've been able to essentially block anywhere from 10 to 15,000 homes from being built in San Diego County because they're restricting development out on those fringes, you know, kind of on the edge of the backcountry. A friend of mine lives in Fallbrook, and he was telling me about a home development that was supposed to be built there in Fallbrook. I think it was, was it called Lilac? I think it might have been that. And that got shot down by voters. If you remember, there was a proposition about it. But, you know, it just seems everywhere you turn, it's like there's a lot of anti-housing fervor for any variety of reasons. You know, they you know, they don't want it in the back country. They don't want it in their hometown. You know, they, people just have trouble accepting the fact that there's more people and there's growth and there's evolution. Um, now, these new restrictions on the development of housing, you know, out in the back country on the edges are partly to blame for the region's housing crisis, according to the Building Industry Association, which admittedly is a biased group. They're going to be all for pro-development. But he said greenfield projects, you know, where which is not infill. It's essentially where you got a, a giant open space and you're developing homes. Greenfield projects, they point out, are significantly more profitable for developers, while infill is more expensive to build. Yeah, infill is more expensive because there's a lot more permitting that's that's required. The land value is a lot more expensive for infill um, homes. And if the developers want to get a profit that they can enjoy that's sort of on par with what they would get on development on the edges of the county, then the pricing becomes very expensive. And we're seeing that here in Poway. You know, these townhomes that are built in the Poway Commons along Poway Road, those are, I think they were originally supposed to sell in the six to $700,000 range, but now they're like seven, eight, maybe 900000 The single-family homes that are being built at the farm in Poway were originally being pitched at around 900-something thousand. You know, that's what was originally discussed back in 2020 when this was being considered. But, you know, of course, the housing market has just continued to go crazy. And now those homes are selling for a lot more than a mil- uh, 900. They're going for a million, a million one, a million two. Now, according this, I thought this was kind of interesting from the Building Industry Association. And he said, Since the Cedar Fire, the fear of wildfires has become a powerful tool used by opponents with other motives for not wanting a project built. He said they complain to elected leaders about a project's wildfire risks and often stress them instead of revealing their real reasons for opposing it. This is very true because like over in Rancho Penasquitos, there is a huge development going in where the Doubletree Golf Course used to be. And and you may have seen it on the west side of the 15 freeway in between, what would it be, Camino del Norte and Carmel Mountain uh, Road. And that's a massive development. And the people there were really angry about that. I mean, these are people that had homes on golf courses. These are people that generally don't want more traffic in their community. And they were saying, oh, no, wildfires. We need more exits, more entrances, more evacuation routes. And you're like, Okay, I mean, is there a, is there a, a risk of a wildfire ripping through Rancho Penasquitos? Yeah, there is, but it's relatively minimal. I mean, even in the Cedar Fire, I think the only places where it jumped the 15 freeway were 
around Miramar. If I, and I know in the 2007 Witch Creek fire, they definitely jumped the border um, into Rancho Bernardo. I mean, my buddy Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, his whole neighborhood got torched um, and he lives out in the Westwood community. Um, so the the risk, though, of really of a serious wildfire blowing through Rancho Penasquitos, relatively minor. I mean, really, I mean, if you're really, I mean, but what these people were doing is they just didn't want the development in the first place, but they're using the fire risk as their primary to kind of evoke emotions of local leaders to get them to do something about it. Um, now, let me just, I want to add a couple of things I think is kind of interesting is that there was a, you know, you, the folks over at UC San Diego have developed this incredible technology. And I should have actually done a story about this in my podcast because they have cameras, high definition cameras that are set up all throughout the back country in San Diego County with the sole objective of identifying wildfires as soon as they occur. And it's incredible what this technology can do because we've all seen how good cameras can be digital cameras that have amazing zoom capabilities. And then you add artificial intelligence to it that, you know, you might see just a little bit of dust in the background, but artificial intelligence can tell if that's just like a, um, you know, a little dust bunny or if that's actually smoke. And so they've created this early warning detection capability to put out fires before they really ever get big. To me, this is the right way to approach this, is we need to think about ways to prevent the fires from occurring in the first place, and having this technology is terrific. But blocking development of housing in San Diego County is only going to make housing more expensive. And I already said San Diego is the most expensive city to live in 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 the United States, this will just make it more expensive. Um, so it, it's interesting. Now, now, thank goodness the they haven't implemented the retrofit, you know, to the older homes to get them up to this new code that applies to new housing. Remember, I said that was going to cost, roughly speaking, about forty grand. Now, we may still get there, but through other means, because insurance companies we've seen insurance get really expensive in San Diego County. Frankly, for a lot of other places around America, particularly with climate and a lot of other issues going on, then you've got um, the risk of wildfire in San Diego, which is that's a real thing. And so as a result, a lot of insurance companies are either raising rates or exiting the market. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to a point in our future where from an insurance perspective, in order to get insurance on your home, there will be some of these added requirements. So we may end up getting there, you know, with these fire-resistant roofs and a lot of other things on existing homes. But our hand may be forced not by government officials, but just to simply get um, homeowners insurance. So keep an eye on that as this whole story develops. Um, But I I think this is all very interesting because obviously we don't want to have more wildfires in San Diego County. I mean, that was tragic what happened in 2003 and 2007. But it is fair to look at the policies that came out as a result of those fires and then just say, hey, how did that impact our housing market? Did it did it make housing construction less expensive and easier or did it make house construction more difficult and more expensive? 
Well, I think it's obvious it made it more difficult and more expensive. And you may think that's righteous considering the the risk of wildfire, and I, I get that. But it's interesting that at every turn, there's always a ratcheting up of the cost of living. If it's not for home prices, it's for sales tax, which is being considered in San Diego, um, and and, a, and at a lot of different levels here. You know, that just makes living in San Diego so darn expensive. Now that leads to the next topic. We're going to talk about cost of living in San Diego is San Diego Gas and Electric. But before I talk about them, I want to just comment quickly on the podcast I do with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. If you love sports, boy, you know, Lee and I, Lee, of course, the legendary um, play-by-play man of the Chargers, the Seahawks, the USC Trojans, the San Diego State Aztecs, the Arizona State Sun Devils. Um, Hacksaw, one of the pioneers um, in sports talk radio history, just an incredible guy. He and I co-host a sports podcast twice a week, um, every Monday and Thursday at 3 p.m. We live stream right here from the John Riley Podcast Studio. If you want to check that out, if you love talking Padres, Chargers, World Series, NFL, you know, the NBA and hockey, NHL are getting started, college basketball about to start. If you love talking sports, check out the Lee Hacksaw Hamilton podcast wherever you get podcasts, including on YouTube. Okay, let's move on. And let's talk about San Diego Gas and Electric. Now, SDG&E is, is always kind of under fire, under the microscope. And, you know, we talked about the Cedar Fires. I mean, ultimately, it was down power lines from the winds that ignited the Cedar Fire back in the day. And I think also what ignited the Witch Creek Fire. So San Diego Gas and Electric is always in the news. And, you know, there's been talk here about a plan to have certain cities have a city-run utility as a competitor to SDG&E. And I think Solana Beach or Del Mar and maybe a few other cities were kicking around the idea. It's interesting, you know, having competitive rates. And we had a little bit of that about 20 years ago, but that was during the whole Enron goofiness. But back then, they deregulated the energy market and there were multiple providers of of electricity. And while they were all using the same infrastructure, they all had different pricing plans with different features and benefits. But in the end, it was the same infrastructure, right? Well, now there's talk of of essentially making our city, our utilities for gas and electric run by the government, similar to how government runs water, similar to any other sort of government monopolies of certain systems. So now there's a ballot measure that's being put together. You know, they're out hustling signatures to push out San Diego Gas and Electric and create a public utility. And the plan, which the guy that's organizing this plan, his name is Bill Powers, which is great because this is a power initiative. According to Bill Powers, the push is, is for the city of San Diego to take over the poles, the wires, the substations in, in the local right-of-ways and, and end its century-long relationship with San Diego Gas and Electric. He said San Diego is already suffering from the highest electric rates in San Diego. Well, to the best of my understanding, that's true. Our electric rates here are crazy. And I think as SDG&E has evolved and has begun to use less and less fossil fuels— we're seeing the price of electricity go up. 
And then meanwhile, for what little fossil fuels that are being used by SDG&E, those prices are going up. And that has, there's a lot of worldwide implications there that affects natural gas and oil and a lot of other things. Um, but according to Powers, he said rates from San Diego Gas Electric have doubled since 2016. And the current projections so far that I've seen is they will rise as far as we can see. And yeah, I mean, that was sort of the justification that we used when we got solar for our home, because we knew that the price of electricity was going to continue to go up, up, up. And if we just had a stable price on what we were paying for our, our um, for our system, whether we're buying or leasing, we would be able to avoid a lot of those price increases. Um, now, numerous studies have estimated that buying San Diego gas and electrics infrastructure within the city limits would cost billions of dollars. So it does make me wonder, I mean, would this agency actually buy all of the assets of San Diego Gas and Electric, or would they use eminent domain just to have government take it over and just to seize it? Um, I'm curious about that. Now, according to the San Diego Gas and Electric spokesperson, she said, we're confident SDG&E remains the best option for San Diego customers, given our outstanding safety record, climate innovation, and unmatched reliability. <laughs> well, that's, that's a corporate spin there for sure. Outstanding safety record? I don't know. I think that's questionable given what happened with igniting those fires, you know, 20 years ago. Climate innovation, they have. They've actually moved away from a lot of fossil fuels to solar and wind. They're still using fossil fuels, but it's significantly lower percentage than what it used to be before. But they always have to sort of tip their hat, you know, because climate is what people are expecting. So it's essentially kind of a virtue signal. And unmatched reliability, yeah, I mean, generally it's been pretty reliable. Um, it's pretty rare for our gas and electric to go out. Um, frankly, my my high-speed internet cable connection goes out far more frequently. Just a couple of days ago, our Cox cable was on the fritz, just got a little bit of water in the air, a little sprinkle, and it went south on us. Now, according to Powers, you know, the guy that's organizing this this ballot signature initiative to get this on the ballot. He says, we have no recourse to make changes to our existing private utility. With this, we'd have local control. Now, think about this. How much better would our gas and electric be if it was run by a government agency rather than by a private company? Now, San Diego Gas and Electric is a private organization, but in many ways, they're kind of like a a state-sanctioned or, or local government-sanctioned monopoly. Because it's not like we have multiple electric wires running into our home and we can pick from various vendors. Um, so, you know, if, if, if this was taken over by the city or, or by the county, essentially by government, would there be more control over the rates? Well, we're, we, we, you see what's going on with our water rates? Our water rates keep going up. And it's not like we have much control over that. It's not like we have alternatives to go buy water unless you're, you know, buying water from, you know, private market water. You know, like if you're buying a jug of water at, at, at the grocery store, so, you know, some people have wells. But for the most part, this would be just replacing one monopoly with another, replacing a government sanctioned monopoly of a private company, SDG&E, with a government run monopoly. And. 
is there going to be more control over rates? I mean, how much control do we have over water rates? I know, I know that here in Poway, um, I think this is Prop 218, is that, and I think this is a state-run thing, but in Poway, there have been organizers that have tried to, to stop water rate increases, but they've got to organize something like half of the homeowners to sign a bill or to sign a pledge to block the water rate increases, and that never happens. So I don't know, shifting this to, I mean, to a government run utility, I have like no hope for this at all. I don't know if this is really the answer. To me, the answer here is to put your own power generating system on your rooftop and to have solar. Um, that's the way to avoid this and to convert more of your in, internal um, appliances to electric. And then by having solar, now you're literally in control. You can make decisions about your own home. And if you're a renter, you can make decisions on where you want to rent, depending on if they have solar or not. But in the end, that's how we take control. Because if government runs a the, the utility company, the only way you have any sort of control is if you can get at least half the voters to agree with you. You don't have any independent control at all. So I, I know I'm kind of skeptical of this. Will it get the signatures? Probably. It probably will. And will it pass on the ballot? <laughs> this would be crazy to see the marketing and propaganda around this if this ever got to become a ballot initiative. But there would be a lot of voters in San Diego that would vote against SDG&E just out of spite. No question. Um, and there's a lot of legitimate reasons to be upset with SDG&E. And frankly, it could pass, but I don't know, you know, be careful what you wish for. I, I don't know what's out there on the other side. And then if, if the government agencies are going to end up buying all of the assets and infrastructure of sdg which we've already said it's going to cost billions of dollars, well, where's that money come from? It's not going to just be, you know, created out of thin air. Most likely that's going to be additional property taxes and bonds, and we're going to be paying one way or the other. Um, and we're still not going to necessarily have very much control over those rates. So what do you think? Or or should should we just use eminent domain and say, screw SDAG&E, we're just going to seize your assets and make it community-owned property? <laughs> that would be outrageous. I mean, that would be theft. Um, that would be very aggressive. But I know there's a lot of people that would like to see that happen because they want – you know, essentially the people to own the means of production. You know, this is this is a socialist move. And I really have no confidence this is right the right answer because government run anything is not incentivized to run it from a fiscally prudent perspective. Government exists to satisfy their voters, satisfy their constituents, and it doesn't matter what things cost because someone else is always paying, right? You know, and as a result, they don't have a a strong driving purpose to lower costs, to lower prices, where a private company does. Now, in this case with San Diego Gas and Electric, we have some of the highest or if not the highest electric rates in the nation. But a lot of that is because of the reaction that they've made to climate initiatives. A lot of it, you know, because of the wildfires. They've been rebuilding a lot of the infrastructure out in East County, which is proper and needs to be done, but they're also shifting to less reliable and more expensive forms of energy like solar and wind. And, 
you know, for a single family home, having your own solar, that's, that's a pretty good way to control your own destiny. But is there enough power being generated from these alternative sources to not just power homes, but to power industry? I don't know the answer to that, but most likely, you know, in order to make that work, even more investment is going to need to be made, which is going to cause prices to go up. And then meanwhile, we're seeing this crackdown on gas-powered appliances. Some cities are limiting them for new construction. Um, you know, and some of that's done at the local level. There's talk of doing it at the national level. I mean, the phasing out of natural gas sounds great from a climate perspective, but from a pricing perspective, that just only incentivizes prices to go up higher. And we know that's probably what would happen if government took over. So pretty crazy. Let's keep an eye on this one. Okay, let's move down the list. And I want to talk here about this new update. Now, I live in the city of Poway, and I enjoy talking about some of the news stories in my hometown of Poway. And this controversy with Lifetime Fitness has been cooking now for at least a year, I think. Now, let me just sort of tee it up for our new listeners and viewers. There's a brand new housing development going in in North Poway at the site of the old Stone Ridge Country Club. It was a golf course. And it was purchased by a guy named Michael Schlesinger, who clearly had motivation to turn that into housing development. But he was unable to do that because here in the city of Poway, there is a prop, there was proposition. Um, what is the letter for it? I can't remember. But back in the late 80s, they passed a proposition that would essentially require a public vote to transform any open space, or in this case, open space recreational land that's zoned for open space recreational, and a public vote would be required to change that to make it available for, say, for single-family housing. And so when Schlesinger bought this property, that was his goal. And he shut down the golf course, let it go to hell. Weeds were growing. It was a fire hazard, yada, yada. And then he came out with a – he got the city to put a bill forward – in 2017, to essentially have the golf course converted to housing, and it was shot down by Poway voters, mostly because they didn't like Michael Schlesinger, because he had had a lot of underhanded tactics, especially what he had done at other golf courses in Escondido and elsewhere. Well, then in 2020, one of our local sort of property management guys, commercial real estate guy, Kevin McNamara, who's pretty influential in the city, he got involved in this project, and he took the the leadership role in driving a new public uh, vote through in 2020, which passed. And I had Kevin McNamara on the podcast, and we got we talked for two or three hours about the his program for the the farm in Poway and a lot of other stuff in Poway. It was a very interesting podcast. You want to check that out because. Kevin McNamara knows a lot of people and has strong opinions on things. And so if you're interested in Poway history, Poway politics, Poway real estate, um, it was a fascinating conversation. I think that was my episode number 100. Well, anyways, when Kevin McNamara was here in this podcast studio, he said the plan that is approved by voters will not change. The only way it can, can change is if it, there is an additional vote by the public. Well, now there is a desire to make a change. You know, originally they were going to have a 3,000 square foot fitness club, you know, with some machines and, you know, 3,000 square feet, not terribly big. 
but like something that would be nice for the community there, maybe you know next to the tennis courts and you know kind of a a, a neighborhood level recreational fitness club. And that was baked into the proposition was Measure P that was approved here by the Poway voters in 2020. And it was approved. Um, And there are still people that were naysayers about the project and they're still naysayers. And I mean, frankly, you go up and look, my wife and I actually drove around the farm and we went in and looked at the houses. We were driving around on the streets. It's incredible how that area has been transformed. And many of the homes are already done. People are already moving into these, but there's still a lot of heavy construction equipment that's out there. But now they want to change the plan and they want to put in a Lifetime Fitness, which is the name of a corporation like 24-Hour Fitness or LA Fitness. And they want to put in, a, roughly speaking, a 30,000-square-foot facility. And this is the photo rendering that they were using now. The previous one that I was able to get showed it was a two-story building. Here it's one story. I'm not sure what it's going to be. But a lot of the naysayers to this plan, particularly the people that wanted to hold true to what the voters voted for, have convinced city officials to set up a community meeting with the people from Lifetime Fitness. And so that meeting is going to occur on Wednesday, November 1st, which is a week from today. And um, they're going to they're going to basically break it all down. Now, this is going to this plan, by the way, is going to include a cafe, a bistro, a center offering cardio strength training studios, offering classes for all ages. The center would also feature outdoor activities, including swimming, a space for six pickleball courts or three tennis courts. So, you know, they're kind of playing up all these amenities for the community. Um, but the, the challenge is, is that Measure P said you can't change anything unless it goes to a public vote. And so now the city council is in kind of this weird predicament. They can either say, sorry, Charlie, you got to go to a public vote, or they might be able to wait to finagle this to find a loophole or some backdoor way of getting it approved. And now this is going to go before the city council on Tuesday, December 5th. So they're doing this community meeting on the 1st, and I think they're having a second community meeting. Um, and it's going to be November 1st from 5.30 to 7.30 at the Poway City Hall Council Chambers, you know, where they hold their uh, city council meetings. And they're just basically going to roll out the program and explain it to everybody. Um, And then most likely if, you know, they're going to field questions from, from, you know, the community, and they're probably going to get a lot of heated questions. And then once they've completed that, then the city council will make a decision. And most likely, if the city council gives it a green light, it's going to probably have to go to voters in November of 2024. But in a lot of ways, this is sort of a transparency thing, or maybe some might say a dog and pony thing where they're going to come out and they're going to present everything just so they can say they had a community meeting and they shared everything with the public. I mean, McNamara did that with the lifetime, excuse me, with the farm in Poway, had a big community meeting over here at Painted Rock Elementary um, in Green Valley and brought in a lot of his architects and construction companies and landscape architects and shared the plan. And it makes sense from their perspective, especially if, if the city council or the community, whether they're voting or not, is involved in any way, shape or form. It makes sense to have the community meeting so you can at least check the box and said, we had the community meeting. Now, um, a new neighborhood meeting would give the developer, this, this by the way, is a, is a quote from 
several community um, residents that were demanding the meeting. It says a new neighborhood meeting would give the developer and city a chance to clarify any misperceptions or other misinformation that has been posted on social media, <laughs> probably talking about podcasters like me, and it would give the public access to accurate information as related to the lifetime proposal. Okay, that's fair. You know, if they want to do this project, yeah, have a meeting and, and share it with the people and get their input and thoughts. Um, and and so I'm curious. I'm going to go to this meeting. I'm curious to see what people are going to be saying at this meeting and, and if people are going to be angry or upset or what that is. Um, Ed Franklin, by the way, on the live stream, he says, do you know if that was bid out to other companies? Um, I don't believe it was. My My understanding is, is that the commercial area of the farm, you know, the residential portion of the farm is Lennar Homes, and they're building all the houses. And I believe Michael Schlesinger still owns that land. I think that's a, a topic of dispute. Um, a lot of the naysayers on the project are still saying Michael Schlesinger is involved when McNamara promised Schlesinger would be out. But at any rate, I know that the commercial portion of the property where they're going to have um, – you know, there's supposed to be a restaurant, bar, cafe of some kind. There's all of the um, uh, the farming. You know, there's going to be like a community farm that's going to be there. There's going to be a barn that can be rented out for weddings, et cetera. That was part of the plan. And that, that whole commercial district um, is owned by Kevin McNamara. And so he's the one that's making the decisions on his private property. I don't believe he, quote, bid it out. I mean, it's really his decision on what to put there. Now, in this case, whatever he decides upon, since it's a change in the plan, would have to get the voter approval. Now, if it were a city-run project, they would have to get have to go out to bid for that. Um, Ed Franklin goes on to say, if it wasn't, that's when it starts to look greasy. <laughs> Not saying that it is, but it looks bad. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's if it's a private if it's privately owned land, then. You know, the private property owner can go out to bid. I, my guess is Kevin McNamara probably considered a wide range of other alternatives. But he saw this as a way, not only a way to improve the community, but a way to probably make more money. And I don't fault him in that. But he is locked in based on this Measure P that was passed. And so he's not going to be able to get this through unless he's able to finagle away with the city council leaders to make this make this go. I'm curious to see how this goes. I'm going to try to go to the meeting and I'll try to get some video footage. Maybe I can share that on the live stream. Uh, but this is this is interesting to me. Um, now, McNamara did say that the farm is already two thirds completed. And if you've driven through there, that makes sense. I mean, they've got houses, people are moved in, landscaping going in. I mean, it's amazing how much they've accomplished already. And the construction should be finalized by the fall of 2024 or earlier. But clearly this commercial zone, I don't know how big it's going to be, maybe a block or something like that, a couple of blocks. That part obviously won't be completed because they're trying to figure out if they're going to have this. Now, in my opinion, this is just one man's opinion here. I don't think the public should be voting on this in the first place. I mean, if it's private property, the public shouldn't have been involved in limiting the area from being developed unless a public vote occurred. And now the public vote is locked in, you know, McNamara and the other developers from making a change in their 
fitness club plan. Now, granted, this is a significant change. I don't agree with having voters approve what private property owners do on their own property. But the reality is, the facts are, is that that's the way the law is set up, particularly because of um, the the proposition was passed in the late 80s in Poway that required public vote to transform open space to residential. And now that it was transformed because of Measure P in 2020, it's going to require a public vote if there's going to be a change. So I'm kind of in the I'm, I'm of the opinion that I don't like it that we have to go to a public vote to make this change. McNamara, in my opinion, should be able to do it on his own. But the reality is, is that he does have to go to a public vote because that's the way the law is written. Like the law or not like the law, that's the way the law is written. But I think it's a pretty interesting story. Um, so what do you think? Um, if you're living here in the city of Poway, maybe you have thoughts and comments on that. Um, and Ed Franklin says, I know, but if it's a community's decision, really, if there's a vote, I mean, again, if, if you wanted to, you know, add a, you know, a, like an ADU, a granny flat into your back property of your house, I don't think that should be a community decision. You know, if you own the land, you should be able to build on land. And it's the fact that it becomes a community decision is when you get the situation where developers end up greasing the palms of elected candidates by either funding their campaign or by funding PACs, which attack their competitors. And you have a lot of money flowing into all these elections, largely from the people that are in the building industry. Because they want to be able to influence local officials in order to get their projects approved. And then you end up with that cronyism. And that's, yeah, that's definitely where things get greasy. Uh, but I think it's an interesting story. Okay, let's move on. I've got two more topics. These will be quick ones, and we'll get to our community forum. This caught my attention. I think this is interesting. And it's, it's along the lines of what I've often been saying. This is a letter to the editor in our Pomerado News, you know, the Poway Chieftain newspaper. And the title of the letter to the editor was City in the Country Confusion. And this, is, this was great. I love this article or this letter. And this was from Poway resident um, Sylvia Heer. And she said, and you can see the, the text up there on the screen, with regards to the article announcing the new restaurant Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers on Poway Road, it really made me laugh when it mentioned that the city council wants it to match Poway's, quote, city in the country character. This from the same council and mayor that allowed four-story apartments and condos that are 15 feet from Poway Road to be built? Where is the city and the country theme with those? Maybe the developers might have the right answer. Yeah, this this is a right spot on. I'm, I'm going to say it. It's, it. it's an uncomfortable truth. Poway is not the city and the country. I mean, and it's not just because of this development on Poway Road and, and the farm. Poway is a suburban city, and it's been a suburban city for decades. Does it have roots and history as a city in the country? Yeah. When the city was incorporated in 1980 and they adopted the motto city in the country, was it a city in the country in 1980? Well, kind of. You know, it was definitely a lot less urban or suburban than other parts of San Diego. But in the year 2000 and 2010, was it the city in the country? No way. 
And now they're building yeah, all those townhomes and apartments on Poway Road. They're building all the single family homes up in, you know, the quote, the farm in North Poway. Is that a city in the country? No, it's not. <laughs> and and it was actually Brian Pepin, one of our city council members, which was the one that said, I, I want to make sure that the architectural look to this Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers restaurant matches the city and the country look and feel. I mean, again, I always I thought that was a virtue signal to voters um, to, you know, make it sound like he was, you know, trying to work on behalf of Poway. Because if you were really focused and really adamant on maintaining the Poway city and the country uh, motto, you wouldn't have, you would have not allowed any of this development to occur. Frankly, I mean, you, you would have demanded very similar architectural requirements of a lot of these other buildings. And, and in the end, government officials should not be architectural um, approvement committee. The decision on the, the look and design of any building in Poway should be up to the property owner to make that decision. But still, the whole thing is kind of a farce because voters and people here in Poway are being fed one line that Poway is in the city and the country. And then they look around and look at reality and notice that it doesn't match. And so you find people angry about it because of the city and the country motto and people demanding that we get a city in the country. When that time has passed, those horses have left the barn and they're not coming home. So I don't know. I in in many ways I think Poway probably needs to revisit that city and that city in the country motto, or at least acknowledge that that is no longer a reflection of 2023. It's really a shout out, a feel good reference to Poway's history, and Poway's history is really cool. And there are some really great things that happened in our city back in the day. And I mean, the, the Poway Historical Society does a wonderful job. But the, the motto no longer exists. So, um, you know, for this person here, Sylvia here, bravo to you for mentioning that. Um, Ed, Ed Franklin on the live stream chiming in. Ed, thanks for joining us on this. Ed had a couple of comments. He goes, I was in Poway this weekend. My wife and I are really disappointed. Things look terrible. We both grew up there. Yeah, if you go down Poway Road, oh, my God. I mean, it's. It's 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 shocking what's happening in between Carriage Road and Community Road. Um, the area where the bowling alley and the thrift stores used to be, I mean, it's radical what's changing there. Um, and not only are, is that building like four stories high, and I think along the street level, it might be two stories high with a facade. So it's like maybe two and a half stories. Yeah, it's a significant change. And, and, you know, if you're on the backside of that housing development, by the way, um, you know, they put in that huge retaining wall that is taller than the houses on the backside. And then they put a four-story apartment complex on top of that. So those people on the backside of that apartment building, the Fairfield Project, I mean, they've got this monstrosity, like jettisoning up from, from their next door neighbor. You know, it's, it's incredible, the difference. And there's a lot of people that are really angry about it. But you know what? This is the infill development that we were talking about. Because normally they would, you know, developers, if they had their druthers, they would go and build more single family homes and create a 200, 300 unit um, 
neighborhood in Ramona or in North Escondido or in Fallbrook or somewhere else. And those have been shot down for environmental reasons. There are rules and regulations put into effect because of the Cedar Fire, which we can probably agree might make sense. But the end result is, is there's a desperate need for housing in San Diego County. So now they're building infill housing and everyone's getting upset about it. So, you know, what do you think? Um, To me, this is interesting because there are people of all stripes, uh, people of all political persuasions that are angry about what's happening in Poway because people just don't like change. People are uncomfortable with change. But I do find it funny, ironic that people that are so-called progressives are against progress, that people that are against housing development in the backcountry also object to it when it's in their own city. So it makes you wonder, do they really object to housing because it's in the backcountry and are you are using that far, uh, the fire threat as their primary, or are they really just anti-housing? Are they really just anti-developers? Because a lot of people just are angry at developers. They just think they're greedy, money-grubbing com- companies that just want to build it and get out of town and collect all the money. And they see that as evil. They don't want more people moving in. Frankly, they see people leaving California and they take joy in that. Yeah, if those complainers, just let them leave. If San Diego doesn't address this housing crisis, our economy will suffer because we're built, we're bringing in, you know, a lot more high tech, a lot more biotech, a lot of high paying jobs. That's great, right? But, and we're attracting talent here, which is great. Innovation, science, investment capital, all great. But these people how have to have a place to live. And whether it's infill or on the outskirts of the city, whether they're commuting or telecommuting, people still need a place to live. And it seems like no matter where housing is proposed, everyone gets upset about it. Um, and Poway has had a tremendous amount of development in the last five years, um, went through various surges of development in the 50s, 70s, and 80s. And we're going through another one right now. I mean, at some point, you know, these things change. I mean, the Poway of 1930 sure looks a lot different than the Poway of 1950 and the Poway of 1970. There's evolution. There's progress. There's change. People just object to the change. Um, Ed Franklin says reasonable change over time is, you know, is reasonable. But but this is drastic. Well, is it? Uh it, it, it's, it's visibly drastic because of the new construction, but it's only on like a little stretch of Poway Road. An area, by the way, that one would say was kind of blight. It was like a really old strip mall, a, an ancient bowling alley that needed significant upgrades to the building infrastructure. And now it's being replaced not only with housing, but it's also being replaced with you know, there's going to be restaurants and other retail uh, outlets that'll be there, more walkable opportunities for people in our community. I mean, it, the, the, it's shocking when you first see it, but if you look at it in proportion and if you look at what's going on across the city, all, you know, the full scope of the city, this is just a tiny fraction of the overall city. Now, 
you add in the farm in North Poway, I mean, that development is far larger than what's going on on Poway Road, for sure. But even that, you add both of those together, that's like, what, 3% of the total square footage of the city of Poway? I mean, it's relatively minor. It's just in a highly visible area. And people are upset about it. And, and Ed, you're a, an old timer Poway guy. I respect that. You were here and grew up in Poway. And when the, the Poway you grew up in, it was very different than the Poway today. And I think you can probably make that same claim for most cities. The city that I lived in looks quite a bit, and that I grew up in looks quite a bit different today than it did then. Um, just There's just a lot more development, a lot more progress. Okay. Um. I want to now go to the San Diego Community Forum where we take comments and, oh, no, wait, I have one more story to get to. (laughs) Oh, this one will just be brief. Um, This is a San Diego podcaster that got fired from her job for anti-Trump comments. This to me is interesting because I'm a podcaster and for my viewers and listeners, you're viewing or listening to a podcast. And a San Diego woman who works for the the, the government for the Department of Veteran Affairs, um, at the same time, she hosted a podcast critical of former President Donald Trump. And um, and she is now suing Donald Trump and U.S. government officials, claiming she was forced out of her job by the former president's administration due to her political views. Um, Allison um, Gill, that's her, her name, is one of the co-hosts of the Mueller She Wrote podcast that initially examined the investigation of a potential Russian interference in the 2016 election. And she ended up getting pushed out of her job. I mean, they tried to get her to relocate to D.C., and she objected to that. Now, what do you think of this? I, this, this is an interesting story because, number one— um, we have a First Amendment in this country, and, and that means we have free speech. That means you're allowed to say what you want, okay? And you also are responsible for the consequences of your speech. So, you know, if you libel someone, if you defame someone, and as a result, they lose a million dollars, then you could be sued, you know, the speech itself is free. You can say what you want, but you, you could be sued because the consequences of your speech inflicted material damage on someone else. So is this a free speech violation? Well, was her podcast shut down? No, it wasn't. Okay, so on that level, that's good news that the podcast was not shut down. But secondarily... She got fired from her job at the Department of of Veteran Affairs. Now, is that proper? Is that right? Now, I would still say no. I would still say from a free speech perspective, that was also wrong. Now, shutting down her podcast would would be more wrong, but firing her from her job for having a podcast, in my opinion, is still wrong. Now, if she worked for a private company and she had a podcast where she was going after the president of her company, then as an owner of a private company, they should have full rights to dismiss her for attacking the leader of their company, for attacking the, the, their company brand. I mean, if you had an employee in your office that was running around, you know, smack talking the CEO and constantly berating the CEO, they would get fired from their job as they should. But in this case, it's a government-run agency. 
It's the Department of Veteran Affairs. And should a government-run agency fire employees as retribution for the words that they're saying? This is a case where in, in a public setting, I say no. In a private setting, it would be legally acceptable, and we can debate the morality of it, but it would be legally acceptable to fire a person to work for a private company that was smack-talking their CEO and their company. I mean, frankly, if you're working for the government, why are you working for the government in the first place if you are upset with, well, in this case, it's former leader? So to me, this is all very interesting. But in this case, um, she was forced from her government job. I'm going to pay closer attention to this because I want to learn more. Okay, now, finally, let's get to our our uh, San Diego Community Forum where we take your thoughts and comments. And this is a comment from uh, Ty Alexander talking about the podcast segment I did about Steve Garvey, the, the former Dodger and Padre that is throwing his hat into the ring to be a senator from California, and he's running as a Republican. And I had commented, there's no way a Republican's going to win. And Ty said, a Republican could win if the elections were not rigged with mail-in ballots. California's been rigging elections since Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. All right, let's, okay, again, let's break this down. First of all, California has not elected a Republican senator since Pete Wilson in 1988, you know, the former San Diego mayor. California is overwhelmingly blue. I mean, you could see the map when it breaks down by county, when it's broken down by precinct. And sure, there are large swaths of land in the Central Valley that's largely agricultural and in some extreme northern California areas like up near the Oregon border, that might be a little bit more conservative, that there might be some blue counties up there, blue, blue voting districts, but there's very little population in those areas relative to the population on the coast. And the population on the coast is overwhelmingly blue. I mean, even San Diego County used to be kind of a light colored red. You know, back in the day when Ronald Reagan was president, Orange County was solid red Republican territory. And San Diego was like a, a Orange County light. Um, but San Diego County now is blue. Uh, the city council is all Democrat. The county board of supervisors is 2-2 Republican versus Democrat with a third, a fifth seat that's going to be voted on. And most likely the Democrat's going to win that. Four of the five Congress representatives are Democrat from San Diego County. So according to Ty... A Republican could win in California? You, there's no way that's going to happen. No way at all. I mean, unless it's a celebrity. And yeah, granted, Steve Garvey is a celebrity. But California has become more progressive, more blue since Schwarzenegger. I mean, look at Gavin Newsom and the policies he puts forward. Now, have they been flooding the market with mail-in ballots? Yes. Does that mean the elections are rigged? Not really. Um, you may have... You may have a problem with the mail-in ballots, and I understand the objection to the mail-in ballots because people can get their hands on these ballots and vote for others. But the likelihood of that happening is still very, very slim. And the, the percentage of people wouldn't be anywhere near enough to flip an election so a Republican can win. That just mathematically is like impossible in California. Um, 
Now, in my opinion, we should make it easier for people to vote. So the fact that ballots are being mailed out, I generally don't have a problem with that. Um, but are elections rigged in California? They, they're rigged for a lot of reasons. I agree they're rigged, but not for this reason. They're rigged because there's really only two parties that dominate, Republicans and Democrats. Districts are gerrymandered. The top two policy, rather than taking winners of all the political parties into the final general election, instead they just take the top two. That makes third parties and independents essentially irrelevant. Um, we can go down the list. The ballot access laws are very different for third party and independent candidates. The media doesn't really cover third party and independent candidates that much at all. There are a lot of ways that elections are rigged in California and in the, in, in the United States, but not because of ballots and not because of the things that Donald Trump and his minions say. The fact is, is that we have two parties in America and they rig the election process so that it benefits them. I mean, the classic example is, is when we have our general election debate that'll occur in October of 2024, how many podiums will be on the uh, stage? There will only be two, a Republican and a Democrat. It doesn't matter that there are more independent voters than there are Republicans or Democrats in the United States. There is no third part a podium for the independent uh, that represents the, the, the independents or additional podiums that represent any of the other third parties. The elections are rigged, but not in, in this case, not for that reason. Okay, let's go down the list. This was another one. I, I had done this podcast segment about the flavored tobacco ban in California and how it had backfired, that people were still getting um, flavored tobacco from from. Uh, in some cases, retailers were still selling it. Other cases, they were getting it out of state or they were having it, you know, bought it off the Internet and having it shipped in. And essentially, this program, this plan failed. And I got a comment back here from, from Clarity 1297. And this person said, vaping and e-cig use is unsafe and have unknown harm with preliminary data. Plus, it's not an evidence-based or FDA-approved way to stop tobacco use. Many countries around the world ban e-cigs and, and or tobacco products to protect their people and build culture and norms to help the community. I do agree that policymakers need to get more prepared to outsmart the greedy tobacco dealers and these, quote, opportunistic, short-sighted and non-productive online influencers trash talk. <laughs> well, I know you're talking about me here, Clarity. Well, here, here, here's the deal. E-cigarettes, I mean, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of e-cigarettes. I don't use e-cigarettes. I've My whole life, I've never even smoked a cigarette because my family always smoked and it just repulsed me so much. I just never have smoked. But relatively speaking, e-cigarettes are way safer for people than actual real tobacco cigarettes because you're still getting the nicotine fix, but you're not getting all of the carcinogens and all of the you know terrible side effects of the actual cigarette. So my point in all of this was, is that e-cigarettes, in this case, flavored e-cigarettes, in my opinion, are acceptable to be sold if for nothing else as a way to wean people off of far more damaging tobacco products. Does that mean that e-cigarettes are 100% safe? Of course not. But is there any product that you can buy that's 100% safe? If, if that was the standard, 
Alcohol would be illegal. Cheeseburgers would be illegal. Milkshakes would be illegal. Candy bars would be illegal because we have an obesity epidemic. We have an alcoholism epidemic or pandemic or whatever you want to call it. We, we, you can't legislate to make your world a bubble-wrapped, safe environment. People are going to take risks. People are going to make choices based on their own values. Now, I had a cousin who was able to wean herself off of tobacco and transition to e-cigarettes. And it likely put additional lives, additional years to her life. Now, she ended up passing away from cancer because all the decades of abuse of regular cigarettes. But when she transitioned, I thought to myself, you know, good on you. And that was a responsible step in the right direction. Would I have preferred that she had quit smoking entirely? Yeah, but it's not my life. It's her life, and she should be the one making decisions. So in this case, Clarity is saying vaping and e-cigarette use is not safe. I, I never claimed it's safe. I'm just saying it's safer than using tobacco products. And, and, and what's interesting is, is that the American Lung Association agrees with me. They were saying that the FDA is misleading the public about vaping, saying that, you know, it's it's unsafe and we need to ban vaping. But the FDA is not explaining it the way I am and saying, relatively speaking, vaping is less dangerous than cigarettes. And that's all that was always my point all along. But, you know, we live we should live in a free society where people should be able to make these decisions on their own. Okay, here's a comment about the the raising canes going into Poway on Poway Road. And this is from DP and and he or she said, maybe a Chili's or an Applebee's would be good. <laughs> a lot may not be big enough, you know, question mark, question mark. Well, you know, what what you would like to have there, what I would like to have there, I mean, we can talk about it, we can debate it, but it's really not our decision. The decision on what goes in, in this case, is raising canes. It's replacing, by the way, an empty lot on Poway Road, a lot that the auto dealer, the Ford dealer, used to have as an overflow lot for their new cars. So if they couldn't fit them on the regular lot, they put them over there. And it's still just an open lot with a shed on it. You know, the owner of that lot should make the decision on what they want to put on that lot. And they obviously are working with the people from Raising Canes. I don't know if they're leasing the land to Raising Canes or if they sold the land. If they sold the land, they're obviously going to be getting the best value for it. And Raising Canes wants to put their uh, their store or restaurant here. And, you know, they've done the analysis and they think their people are going to come if they build it. But should we have a say? I don't think so. But a lot of people think that the city council is the one that's making all these decisions on who which restaurants go into town. Now, they do have some influence for sure. I mean, because there's regulations and zoning and a lot of times things need to be approved by the city council. But ultimately, the city council isn't the one that's making the decision. We're going to put in, we don't want a, you know, I'm making this up. We don't want a Popeye's chicken. So instead, we're going to put in a, a, a Raising Cane's chicken. They don't make those decisions. The private property owner should, as they should. Now, would I, would I have preferred a Chili's or an Applebee's? Well, I mean, is a Chili's or an Applebee's really that much different than a Raising Cane's? It's slightly different. I mean, it's just another another kind of franchise or corporate 
uh, restaurant environment. Yeah, would I prefer to go to a, an Applebee's or a Chili's than a, a Raising Cane's? Probably. I've done it before. We go for happy hour or something. But I mean, my preference would be is, you know, more independent restaurants it would be terrific rather because we have so many chain restaurants in Poway. I mean, besides all the fast food chains, we still we have an outback here. Um, I mean, what else is in Poway? I probably make a list of a lot of other spots. But I would prefer to see more kind of independent local restaurants. That'd be great, but it's ultimately not our call. And for, you know, Chili's and Applebee's, man, that that doesn't really get me too excited. But in the end, it's not our call. But, you know, that's going to go down. That's going to go in soon. So we'll we'll see what happens. We'll follow that story as it goes. Okay, we got one more comment in the community forum. <laughs> this was a crazy one. I wasn't sure to include it or not, but I decided what the hell, I'll include it. And this goes back to a previous community forum where I got pushback from another listener, Mike Devine. Basically, we're in agreement about Republicans and Democrats and how they're really not as different as people make them out to be. You know, if you listen to the media or you listen to some of the the propaganda and the rhetoric that comes from these two parties, you would think that one was the angel and the other was the devil. But the reality is they're, they're not a very big difference between the two. And that was my big point. Well, according to Halfbreed, <laughs> great handle there, um, this person said, you forgot the most important thing. Democrats give to the poor and Republicans give to the rich and racist. Newsflash, <laughs> there are honestly more poor people in the world and middle class people in the world than they are rich. Then there are rich people. Food for thought. Carry on. <laughs> Okay, um, first of all, both parties, Republicans and Democrats, give to the poor. Did you pay attention during COVID with all the COVID money that was being handed out? I mean, it was like free money just flowing either directly to individuals or money was going to corporations to keep their employees working in the form of the PPP loans. Have you ever, you know, the, the Republicans, like them or not, Raised taxes for Social Security, expanded Medicare under Bush, expanded Medicare for prescription drugs. I mean, we can go down the list of all these things that Republicans do to help the poor, whether you like them or not. And do the rich get benefits from the Democrats? Well, hell yeah, they do. I mean, look at all like this policy that um, that Biden's pushing forward. This CHIPS Act is giving corporate welfare to Silicon Valley companies so they'll develop more semiconductors. And that's one of a long list of other areas where government policies, whether they're Republican or Democrat, yeah, they do they, quote, give to the rich? In some cases, they do. In other cases, there might be a tax cut from the Republicans, but that's not a giving of anything. That's just a tax cut isn't a gift. A tax cut doesn't give anybody anything. A tax cut just simply takes away less of what a person has already earned. But, you know, I mean, it's to say that Republicans are for the rich and the Democrats are the poor is just hogwash because both parties are for both factions. Both parties try to get votes from both sides. I mean, look at the red states and tell me, do you think that's where a lot of the rich people live? Red states are overwhelmingly a lot less rich than a lot of blue states. Um, and then goes on to say that, um, 
brings up the racist comment, which you know, I, I got you there. There's a lot of racism that comes out of the Republican Party. No question about that. But, it, you know, the Democrats aren't immune to that. There, there's still some of that on their side, too. But clearly, the Republicans are worse in that category. But to suggest, oh, there's more poor people and more middle class people, it's almost like a threat. You know, you, are the poor people going to come and, you know, guillotine the rich people? Well, here's the deal. Um, and I think this is worth mentioning is that worldwide, abject poverty is almost entirely wiped out. I mean, if you roll the clock back 200 years ago, 250 years ago, I'd say easily 90 to 95% of the people on this planet were dirt poor, that only earned enough money each day to eat, that barely were able to scratch enough food from their farm to eat themselves. But now, less than 10% of the world's population is in what's called abject poverty. And the reason is, is because there's more free enterprise flowing around the world, more businesses, more manufacturing, not just in America, but in China, Vietnam, India, Korea, Japan. We're seeing more capitalism starting to happen in the eastern part of Europe since the Soviet Union collapsed. And even in some of the countries in Africa are beginning to adopt more free trade, more free markets, more capitalism. And as a result, they've seen poverty levels continue to decline. So if we're going to make a big point about, you know, the middle class and the poor and everything else, we need to be encouraging more entrepreneurship, more development, more business Because what that does is it creates more economic opportunity. And as a result, poor people rise up. More opportunity for poor people to get jobs, to develop skills, and build experience to parlay into higher and higher wages. I think that's something that's lost. A lot of times there's so much anger at corporations and wanting to shut corporations down or to nationalize corporations or to tax corporations. We should be doing the opposite. We should be encouraging more of that so that there's more economic development and more economic opportunity that we can all enjoy. And as a result, we'll see poverty levels continue to go down. But do Republicans and Democrats want to do that? Not really. Um, you, you, you'll find that our economic growth rate in America is, with the exception of the, of the goofiness through the COVID period, it's been roughly at about 2% for decades with some slight exceptions in the 90s, um, you know, and, and with the Great Recession. But we're not experiencing 5 and 6% GDP growth rate. We haven't experienced anything like that. Probably, it might have been one year in the 80s when we had over 7%. And it's because, in my opinion, a lot of the government policies limit, and we talked about how they limit housing construction, but they limit development of co- companies. They limit corporate growth. They limit um, corporate expansion. And, 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 and as a result, we have a lot less opportunity in America. So at any rate, um, I, I don't, in my opinion, I don't see Republicans and Democrats as one as good and the other as evil. I don't see one as an angel and one as a devil. In my opinion, they're both awful. <laughs> and we can debate, you know, some of the policies and in some camps, 
in some policies, the Democrats are a little better than Republicans. On other policies, the Republicans are a little better than the Democrats. But on most policies, they agree. And on most policies, they're terrible, both of them. And that's why I'm always like I'm a big proponent of independent and political uh, third party political candidates so that we can have more options, more ideas, more innovation and begin to break down this entrenchment that this duopoly has on our political system. But that's just me. I mean, what do you think? Okay, friends, um, going at it an hour and 31 minutes, and that is long enough for the John Riley po- Project. You know, it's a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can also go to my landing page just to get on the mailing list and maybe connect on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com, connectwithjohnny.com. And there you can learn more about the podcast and get more information. But I thank you for listening and watching and sticking with me for an hour and a half. We covered a lot of great stuff. San Diego News Headlines. I'll be back with you next Wednesday. Um, That'll be the 1st of November. And then that night, I'm going to go to that Lifetime fitness meeting here in Poway. We'll check it out and I'll share my my thoughts and opinions from that meeting in a future podcast. Okay, friends, make it real. Have a good day and we'll see you later. Take care, my friends. For life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this is John Riley. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.